We're now going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, from verses 32 to 39. Uh, That's where we'll be reading from. This is uh, Jesus speaking. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Good morning, everyone. My name is James, and it's great to be here with you this morning, and I'm going to jump straight into it, because we've got a lot to get through, and I'm excited about it. I wonder, when I say picture a happy family, what image springs to mind for you? If I said if I said picture the, the typical happy Australian family, what would that look like for you? I think if we could have a, a TV mounted on all of our heads right now and be projecting those images out, we'd probably get a collection of all sorts of different images. Typically Anglo families, mixed families, families that are second generation Australians, third generation Australians, some bigger, some smaller. There's all sorts of different pictures of what family can look like. But I think that one thing that we would all agree on is that it's really important for all of us, regardless of whether you've had a really good family experience or whether you've suffered the sadness of having a bad family experience. It shapes us. It means something to us. It's a history that we can't escape. It means something, and we all agree on this. In fact, as we start to look at pop culture and what some of our culture creators have said about family, it's pretty clear that family is like a really big deal for most of us. So, for example, uh, the author Maya Angelou says, I sustain myself with the love of family, that idea of finding comfort and strength in them. J.K. Rowling says something similar when she says, family is a life jacket in the stormy sea of life. Of course, Lilo and Stitch says, Ohana means family, and family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. Lilo and Stitch isn't the only Disney movie to have some commentary on family far from it. Uh, Recently, we saw in Coco, where he says, we may have our differences, but nothing's more important than family. That's Miguel there. And maybe it's no surprise that so many Disney movies has family as a central theme. Walt Disney himself says, life is beautiful. It's about giving. It's about family. Princess Diana uh, takes it a step further. She says family is the most important thing in the world. And Michael J. Fox, the actor from Back to the Future, takes it another step again when he says family is not an important thing, it's everything. Family is clearly a really big deal for us in culture. In fact, it's been one of the central themes to one of the best-selling movie franchises of the last 20 years. Can anybody guess what it is? That's right, it's The Fast and the Furious. Yeah, I knew you were there. Okay, The movie that launched a thousand memes about family, right? Just a few quotes. The most important thing in life will always be family. I can't do a Dominic Toretto impersonation, but just imagine it. Uh, The most important thing in life will always be the people in this room. Salute, Mia Familia. Alright? I don't have friends. I got family. 
powerful. And you don't turn your back on family even when they do. Fee and I might have binged eight Fast and the Furious movies during this lockdown, but that's cool. The important thing is, as we see here, is this idea that family is, you know, something that you just have to be loyal to. Why? Because it's the most important thing, right? This idea that family is the most important thing is something that we've heard so much in our culture that we don't even kind of question it. But is that what the Bible actually teaches about family? Is family the most important thing? I think that for Christians, as we spend time around church, we'd agree that Family is an important thing, particularly it seems like Christians in the political space, we often talk about you know, uh, guarding the family, protecting the family, family first, protecting the family, all, the, all these sorts of ideas seem to be out there. So you, it would seem that Christians are pro-family, but is it the most important thing? I think it's pretty clear from the Bible that the answer is no, it's not. And that, that's my first point that we're going to look at this morning. Family is not the most important thing. And we'll look at a couple of passages here from Jesus to start with to show us what I'm talking about. So it says here in Luke 14, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Really surprising words here from Jesus. If anyone does not come to me and hate his family, he cannot be my disciple. And then the passage that we've seen a few times now this morning from Luke 10. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring a sword. Sorry, that was the same verse again. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If you spend any time around church, this is really striking and surprising, because normally when we think about Jesus, we think about peace and love and reconciliation and bringing people together. And now we have him here using language like hating our family and then being our worst enemy and bringing division and a sword. And it's like, what is going on here? Well, first up, There's some clues here to help us understand what Jesus is saying. But there's no doubt we need to pay attention to the fact that he's saying this in a striking way because he wants to get our attention. He's making a point here, even if the first thing that he's got in mind in these passages is not family as such. And you can see it in the way that he repeats a couple of phrases. So here in Luke 14 when he says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's really the point that he's trying to make here. After talking about how you have to be willing to hate your family and following him, he goes on and gives two more examples of needing to count the cost of what it's going to look like to follow Jesus. He gives the example of building a tower, counting materials, going to war, counting your soldiers, seeing if you think you can win. And then he finishes that passage off with this saying, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He's not actually trying to say that you have to hate your parents, but rather your love for him must be so great. 
Your willingness to sacrifice all to follow him must be so complete that you would even be willing to sacrifice your family relationships in order to follow him. And that comes through really clearly in this other passage here from Matthew 10 as well, where we see that same idea, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The whole point of these passages is for Jesus to drive home, I'm the one that you need to love and follow more than anyone else. And these are confronting passages for us because we just, again, have breathed in this idea, family's the most important. But Jesus is taking that idea to drive home his point of just how complete our conviction to follow him needs to be if we're going to do it sincerely. Even that most precious relationship that you have on earth needs to be like hate or, or, or like an enemy compared to what it is to love me. Now, how can, make this, how can Jesus make this demand of us? Isn't that arrogant and cruel and proud of him? Well, the answer is actually found in the same reason why we love our family. We love our family because they're the ones who have cared for us. They're the ones who have given us life. They're the ones who have been there for us time and time again that we have this shared history with. There's this bond that we feel with them that seems incredible that we could turn on. And that's why it hurts so much when our family hurts us because it's not meant to be that way. But we need to understand that even before our parents, Jesus is the one who gives us life. Jesus is the one who created us. Jesus is the one who set our days in order for all time. He's the one who came into this world and became one of us, became blood with us, in order that he can die on the cross and pay the price for our sins to rescue us from all the mistakes that we have made. Even more than our family, Jesus is the one who stands by with us, caring for us, loving us, sacrificing in order to redeem and rescue us. And that's why he can make this claim upon us that says, nobody else can come before me. I have to be so far above and beyond because of all that I've done for you. And that's how Jesus can make that claim. Now you might acknowledge that, and you might accept that and say, okay, that, I understand why Jesus would want me to love him more than any, but what does it mean that he's come to, to turn me against my family? What, what does it mean to have my family as my worst enemy? Can't I love Jesus and my family? Now to understand what he's getting at here, I think that we need to remember the original context in which he was speaking to this, because it wasn't in 21st century Australia. It was to a Jewish context at that specific time in history. You've got to remember that for the Jews at that particular point in time, the one big lesson that they had learnt from all of their history with God as recorded in the Old Testament is they are not to worship any God apart from God. And now Jesus is coming along, and what is the thing that he is arrested for? What is the thing that he's ultimately murdered for? It's because they accused him of blaspheming because he made himself equal with God. That's how serious a claim this was. If Jesus was false in that claim, he would have been guilty of blaspheming against God. Now we know through his death and resurrection he was the one true God. But you can imagine in that situation, if you've got a Jewish family and half of them are believing that Jesus is God and the other half are believing that Jesus is a blasphemer, that is going to create enemies out of them. And that still happens in some places around the world today. We, we don't often feel that quite as much here in Australia because even if your parents are kind of hostile towards Christianity or other family members are unbelievers, there can be tension, but it doesn't sort of normally get to that sort of level. But in Jesus' day, that's absolutely the situation that he was in and, and so too with other places around the world still. And so his point is, is that you need to be willing even for your family to be like enemies to you 
in order to follow me and love me well. So family is not the most important thing. But that said, family is still a good thing. And that's point number two. We see the family is something that God gives in the very, very beginning. When he created Adam and Eve and he gave them to one another and they joined together to become one flesh in that first family, family is something instituted by God and it's a good thing. And it's affirmed at a couple of different points in the New Testament as well. So, for example, Jesus, when asked about divorce, he says, Haven't you read in Matthew 19 that at the beginning, of the, the, at the, beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus believed in family. He thought it was a good thing. It was not something to be thrown away or ripped apart. It's a good thing to be upheld. Similarly, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, talks about marriage and affirms the the love that a husband and wife are to have for one another. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that's language that, again, is quite striking for us today in our contemporary culture. If you want to hear more teaching about that, we we spent a couple of weeks looking at this uh, back in April, and you can go back and look at that on our website if you'd like to. But the point that I'm trying to get at here is the way that, again, Paul affirms that marriage is a good thing. It even mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is this good thing that's being affirmed. Family is a good thing that's being affirmed. Same thing with parents and kids. In Deuteronomy 6, we read what the responsibility of parents were was in the Old Testament. It says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And in the New Testament, this same principle being uh, given... Holy affirmation, uh, when Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, just as they were commanded in Deuteronomy. Paul specifically singling out fathers there, but it's also a thing that mothers would do too. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Okay, the family is a good thing. It's something where children come forth from it. That's a wonderful blessing. It's something where man and woman image God together. It's a picture of Christ and the church, and it's also the place where children are raised up and trained in the ways of the Lord. Family remains a good thing, and that's something that we can rejoice in. But we need to think hard again about, as it's a good thing, 
Is it the first thing? What, what do we do with it? How are we meant to think about family in this context now that we live after what Jesus has done for us and the creation of God's family through faith in him? Because the thing is, is that while family remains a good thing, it's actually in the New Testament not the first point of emphasis for the gospel authors and for the later writers of the New Testament when it comes to family. The spiritual family, God's family, takes precedence over that. There's very few references compared to the number of references we have to spiritual family when talking about natural family. And so we've got to recognize that there's been a change there. And it really comes from Jesus himself. This is what he said uh, in Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's, that's pretty amazing, right? Again, Jesus is being told his family is right there, and instead he says, my family are those that I've been united to by faith, by the Spirit of God, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should disown our family. In fact, one of the last acts that he does on the cross is to say to his disciple John to take care of Jesus' own earthly mother. He doesn't stop loving her. He doesn't stop caring for her. But he does give this priority to spiritual family, to to, to drive home the significance of that. And this is the thing that we have to recognize. For us now, after the coming of Christ and the introduction of the kingdom of God and God's family into this world in a newer, richer sense through faith in Jesus, a natural family remains important, and it's something we should rejoice in, but it's something we have to understand it as the temporal gift that it is. What I mean by that is, it's been given to us for a certain time, for a certain reason. Marriage is a great gift still for imaging God together, for being a picture of Christ in the church, for having kids and for raising them. Parents and children, that idea of generational transfer of the ways of the Lord, that's still a good thing, but it's a temporary gift. It's not an eternal thing. It's not an eternal reality. And that really should help us to understand that marriage and family is not the pinnacle of human existence. I see this coming around in church circles. You can sort of tell when somebody's a single person, that they're kind of looked at with this sort of sense of tragic sadness, like there's something wrong with their existence. They might even feel it themselves. But a single person in Christ is no less human or no less successful as a human than the married person. Whether you're single by choice or by providence or by tragedy, by death, that doesn't make you less than. And if that's not something that God's ever given to you or something that you've willingly given up in order to follow the Lord in the way that you feel like he's called you to, that is a blessing and something that the New Testament affirms and gives life to. We need to stop sidelining singles in the church or or treating them as some sort of special separate species that we looked upon with sadness, but rather to make sure that we love them and include them as part of God's family. Marriage isn't the pinnacle of human existence. It's a a good thing, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And we see this coming through really, really clearly in one particular passage of Jesus where he talks about what marriage looks like and whether it continues on into heaven. 
the Sadducees uh, were a group of religious people in Jesus' time who didn't think that there was going to be a resurrection. Right? He, they thought that once you died, you were done. Right? But Jesus is, is going to uh, have a little interaction with them when they try to trap him on some teaching. In Matthew 22, it says this. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers amongst us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? It's a trap, right? They're coming up with a, you know, Kind of ridiculous, but partly plausible, hypothetical situation of this woman who's married seven brothers after each one has died, and they're asking the question, like, if there's a resurrection, then whose wife is she going to be? Ha! Not going to work, right, Jesus? Therefore, no resurrection? Ha! I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. But Jesus surprises them. He says, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus' response to this hypothetical situation is to say, no, no, you've misunderstood Marriage is till death do us part. That's what we promise, right, when we get married. It's not an eternal situation. Uh, we blew some youth's minds with this on Friday night, so parents, I'm sorry if any of you had to stay up late having a conversation with this about them, uh, sorry about this. But this is the, the truth of what scripture teaches, what Jesus teaches. Marriage isn't an eternal state. Now, we have a shared history with our spouses that will never change and which I, I believe we'll remember in heaven. But we're not married to them. We're, we're not joined in the same way. That, that time ceases. And there's a sadness for us now in this. I don't believe that there will be in heaven where there'll be no tears and no pain and there'll be rejoicing and seeing the Lord face to face. Whatever our relationship will be in some strange way, I think it'll be richer and greater even than what it is now. But this is the thing we have to understand. Marriage, our families, these are temporary things. They're not eternal things. In fact, we make a grave mistake when we turn them into that. So the the author George, George Bernard Shaw said, a happy family is but an earlier heaven. And look, I get it. There is something divine about a happy family life. It, it, it's beautiful. Those times when you're all sitting around the family together, the table together, and if you're a Christian family and you're, you're praying or you have a moment of rejoicing in the Lord together, there's a taste of heaven in that. I get it. But the thing is, we can't elevate our natural family lives to heaven on earth. Because the risk is that we make that the goal. The pinnacle of our human existence is somehow to create this perfect family life. But when we start to do that, when we, we take the family, God's good gift to us, and we elevate it up to the, the divine thing that we worship and seek above all else, well, that's when we destroy it. Family is a temporal gift. 
It's something that we're given for, the, for this time now. But Jesus prioritizes our spiritual family. He prioritizes our relationship with himself. Now, I get that on some level that causes a sadness because again, we live in this culture where we're told again and again, family is the most important thing. And we might not have really interrogated that idea enough, but this morning I hope that you're starting to get that sense of, yeah, family is great, but it's not the most important thing. Jesus is. And the eternal family that I have with him, where they're going to worship Christ together for all of time. So the question that we're left with is, what does it look like to love family well? What does it look like to do natural family well now in light of all that Christ has done for us? And what it looks like is encouraging one another to love him above all else. To fulfill the roles that we've been given. As fathers, mothers, parents, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, whatever the case may be. And to fulfill that role as one who loves Christ first and foremost and loves our family out of that love. So fathers, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, Submit to your husbands and respect him and love him as the church does Christ. Sons and daughters, love your parents and obey them, honor them. Go through the difficult time of figuring out what it looks like to grow in the Lord and in your own independence and keep honoring your mother and father even though you move away, even though you recognize they're not perfect. And there's times when you might disagree with one another, but you have to learn what it looks like to do that with respect and love. Parents, don't give up training your children in the Lord. We've got a special opportunity when they're young to read the Bible with them, to pray with them, to take that responsibility seriously, the temporal gift of family, to, to teach them the ways of the Lord while they are with us. But don't stop when they get bigger. Work through that transition of what it looks like to go from that strong parent child relationship to brother, sister in Christ. Families, don't exclude singles from your life. Welcome them in. Recognize the blessing that it is to have single friends and to have them be influences in your child's life every bit as much as married people and other families and siblings and peers and all that sort of stuff. Singles, find ways to include us in your life. Help us to understand what it is to live something different from what we're living in order that we might, as a spiritual family, love the Lord more together. Families and married people, stop looking with pity upon single people and single people forgive us for the times that we've excluded you from church life or made you feel like because you're not married that somehow you're failing to live up to human perfection. Widows, forgive us for too often excluding you and sidelining you. Families, take the opportunity that we have now to write to those people amongst us who might have lost family the seniors amongst us who during this lockdown period are some of our most isolated people, find ways to love them well. Seniors, please don't just uh, leave us alone either. Write to us. Young people, help older people learn technology so that we can continue to connect through tech during this season. There are so many ways for us to do family well, both on the natural level and on the spiritual family level. And it all comes from loving Christ first. Loving him for the grace that he's given us. And then out of that, seeking to love others also. Let our, not, let our families in this lockdown period not become these insular little fortresses where we just take care of ourselves. We know it's tough. 
But the best thing that we can do for our families is to love Christ first and his family and take that attention just off of ourselves and seek to love others also. Family is a good gift from the Lord. But like all his gifts, he's given it to us in order that we can love and serve him well with it. So rejoice, whatever your family situation. Maybe you're married, maybe you're married with kids, maybe you're single with older parents, maybe you're single with brothers and sisters who are married. Whatever the case may be, let's seek ways to honour these roles that God has given to us in this life in order that we might be loving him in a way that worships him and that we can carry on into eternity in doing that. Let's pray that we do that together. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he has shown us that he is our family above all others. That he is the one who gives us life, who cares for us, who sustains us, and who rescued us. He is the one who became like one of us, taking on our blood in order that we might be saved and rescued from our sinful choices and the mistakes that we've made. And Lord, as we love him well, as we keep him in his proper place, enable us by your spirit to love our families well, our natural families, whatever season we're in, whatever situation that might look like. Help us, Lord, to deal with the pain of when it goes badly, to be forgiving and gracious, to reconcile where possible, and Lord, to endure well when it's not. Help us, Lord, to be thankful for those situations that are happy and content and where we worship the Lord together and encourage us to keep the focus on you. May we as parents and children and siblings and extended family encourage one another in the Lord. May you be the focal point of our conversation and the words that we speak to each other. And as we seek to do family well for you, Lord, Father, please bless us with the good riches of what it is to have a little taste of heaven here on earth. Never mistaking that for the goal in itself, but rejoicing, Lord, in the picture it is of the heaven to come, worshipping you together with all of our family around the world, those who believe and trust in you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.